You are about to listen to a sermon from Common Ground Church in Rapid City, South Dakota. We hope to see you in person. For more information, visit commongroundcma.org. Amen, amen. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, everyone, for sharing the gift of Adam in life and, and taking that to the Lord, as Nick said. That's what family does. They don't shy away from those things. Well, hey, um, over the last four weeks, during the Advent, we've been working through the book of Ruth. Um, and the book of Ruth is a book in the Old Testament that really revolves around three main characters, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. And what's that? Yes, and in Advent, one of the things we've been doing is we have been playing videos of Advent readings from those members of our family who are not able to join us in person, but who are joining us via live stream. And this week, with the Advent theme of love, we have a video from a family here that I think we have up and running. So, Good morning, Common Ground Church. We are the Straub family. I'm Ray. I'm Sally. I'm Christina. Reading the Advent reading from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. And I'm reading from John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. For he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe in him is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. And I'm reading from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being by being like-minded, from having the same love, from being in one spirit and of one mind, do nothing of selfish interest or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above other, 
above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Merry Christmas from our house to yours. Oh, they're great. I love Christina's uh, Rock and Roll Jesus sweater. <laughs> or Santa, whatever that was. So yeah, I was I was inspired by them because of their Christmas sweaters. So had to throw mine on today. Yeah. Even though Ray, as Sally said, was being a grumpy Canadian and unwilling to put one on. And still, we decided we had to go with it. Okay, should I start back from where I was? <laughs> start over. So in Advent, we've been working through the book of Ruth. We've been looking at this Old Testament book, this little story, which on the surface, it's kind of hard to tell exactly where this fits into the Bible, and it's kind of hard to tell exactly how this relates to Christmas. And then we compared it essentially to like a connect the dots puzzle, where it's this conglomeration of dots, and it's hard to tell until the very end when they're all connected and then the picture becomes clear. And so as we reach the end here of the book of Ruth, the dots all get connected. And we see this story of these three characters, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. We see what God was doing in their life up to this point. And we see this big connection to Jesus. And the example of Ruth is that even when it's unclear, even when we can't see it, God is still working. That God is at work in the world and in our lives, even when we can't see it. This is... Essentially, the meaning of chapter 4 of the book of Ruth, maybe even the entire, the entire book. And this really is the Christmas story, that even when we can't see it, even when God works in these small, seemingly confusing ways, He is still at work. He is still doing amazing things. Because as we've said in the Advent, the Advent is this middle space where we're, we're looking back to Jesus' birth, but we're also looking forward to Jesus' arrival. And so we're in this middle space between the two arrivals, where the kingdom is here, but the kingdom is not yet here in full. And so we can have joy, and we can have these amazing things that God does for us, but we will also still experience sadness. We will still experience tragedy. And what we see in this book of Ruth is that there's loss, there's tragedy, there's grief, and then God also works his amazing redemption. He comes through, and his loving kindness changes the story. And as we reach the end of the book here, we get the resolution that kind of we've all been hoping for. All the dots are connected in the way we wanted. And it almost seems a bit like kind of the classic fairy tale ending of a happily ever after. Seems a bit like that. But it really isn't quite like the classic happily ever after. Even though they have a very happy ending and all these people essentially get what they're looking for, Ruth concludes with something even more beautiful than I think just a happily ever after. It actually ends with this surprise twist. It ends with something that no one saw coming. And it was even better than just that predictable happily ever after. It ends with this surprise twist. And now J.R.R. Tolkien is the author best known for writing, um, you know, The Lord of the Rings and coming up with the world of Middle Earth. He created creatures like hobbits and that sort of thing. He also created a lot of words. And one of the words that Tolkien created was the word eucatastrophe. Eucatastrophe. Basically, he took the little Greek prefix eu or u, which means good, and he put that in front of the word catastrophe. So it's a good catastrophe. 
And this is all through his writing, where he would purposely let things get really, really bad, where the story would take a dark turn, where the main character would get horribly injured in some way, where things started to look like they weren't going to work out, and he would use that to then dramatize a miraculous ending, a good catastrophe. And the story arc would immediately turn positive. And so, really what happens in Ruth is it's not just this happily ever after, it's more of a catastrophe. We're going to see that this drama of the tragedy of the death of everyone involved, and then this story arc of really at the very end, just switching to positive, shows us that it truly was just a good catastrophe. Because Ruth isn't just a fairy tale, I think it really is a catastrophe. And so, do you have your Bibles open? I see a lot of people are there already. So grab your Bible and find your way to Ruth chapter 4. And we're going to jump in there. Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. And as we have been kind of going through in this series, we're going to read a few verses at a time. And then don't close your Bible. Don't close the app. But leave it there. And then we're going to kind of talk. And then we're going to come back to it. The words will also be on the screen. So that is Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and he sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you and I am the next in line. The Redeemer responded, I will redeem it, he said. Okay, so stop there. So here we have Boaz. He's speaking with this other Redeemer and he says, come over here, friend. And now the expression that he uses there um, to refer to him as friend is not like the common word for friend. It's more like calling him Mr. So-and-so or like John Doe. Um, And his name is never used. You never get this guy's name. And if you read the commentaries or if you read some scholars on Ruth, because there's no name provided, they often just refer to him. It's this weird inside joke. They just refer to him as Mr. No Name. Um, and it's like the lamest scholarly joke I've ever heard in my life. Um, but what they explain is that the narrator left his name out on purpose. They wanted essentially to erase him from history because he didn't act honorably in this case. Essentially because he's going to be the one who will choose selfish selfishness over selflessness. And because of that, they don't want his name remembered. He didn't act honorably. He has no right to be remembered. I don't want to call him Mr. No Name as we continue through this story. Um, and in order to follow the story, I always think it's more helpful to have a name. So I'm thinking if we refer to this guy as Chad today, <laughs> right? I think we don't have any Chads in here, but I think if you were a Chad, you'd probably know the meme, right? Whereas the name Chad has been really associated with someone who typically would do selfish or self-centered things, right? Someone who might not necessarily look out for others. Okay, now one of the things that we acknowledged as we discussed if we could use this name Chad is what we have to remember is that not all Chads are Chads. 
and not all people with other names, you know, it's not guaranteed that you're not a Chad in that case as well. But for the sake of the story, we know, right, Chad is a type, and so that's the name we're going to use for this guy, okay? So Boaz, he presents Chad with this golden opportunity to redeem Naomi's land. And back then, it was very difficult to get more land. It was very, because the land was typically passed on to family and it was kept within the family, you couldn't just go out and buy land. People were not willing to sell it. But Naomi, also, her land, not only is it just up for sale and up for redemption, she also has no one to inherit it, which was rare as well. Oftentimes, even if um, there was land that was going to be up for grabs, there was someone somewhere down the line in the family who would have a right to that land. However, Naomi had no sons, no grandsons, and so there's no inheritor for this land. This is a very rare opportunity. This is land with no strings attached. There's no one coming up wanting this. And so, this is a pretty good deal for Chad. This is a rare opportunity. But notice one thing, is that Chad's had kind of a complete lack of action up to this point. He, Boaz has been fairly involved, he's known about this, But Chad has not done anything. He hasn't even talked to Naomi about it. You see, since Naomi has no sons and no one to inherit the land, um, while redeeming the land would be a good thing and it is the right thing to do, there's no legal obligation to do it. And since he is the closest in line as far as the family is concerned, he can just wait for Naomi to get old and pass away and the land will by default just be inherited to him. And so he doesn't have to go redeem this land. Most likely, he's just playing the long game here. He's just going to wait her out. And when she passes away, it'll be his and he won't even have to pay for it. And while this sounds good on paper and sounds almost like a smart, savvy way to get land for free, what we've talked about with this role of a redeemer is the purpose of the redeemer was to display God's hesed love. It's to display God's loving kindness. And while this might be a smart move, it stops short of displaying God's loving kindness. It stops short of being the purpose of the Redeemer. The purpose of the Redeemer wasn't just to keep the land and to make good financial decisions. It was to restore people and to help the family members. And Chad wasn't doing that. He was just waiting there. He wasn't involved until Boaz made him get involved. Boaz went after him and brought this to his attention. And I just can't can't help but think, you know, how often do we settle for this, okay? Chad wasn't necessarily doing anything wrong. He was just waiting. But he still would stop short from displaying God's hesed love. And we often have those opportunities where, you know, we might not have broken any laws, we might not have done anything actively bad, but in waiting or in just holding back, we've missed out on taking those faith-filled risks. We've missed out on taking the extra mile in pursuing others to display God's love. You see, Jesus, the real Redeemer, he went out of his way to display God's love. He didn't just sit back and play the long game. We know that while Christmas is Jesus' birthday, it's a very different kind of birthday than the ones that we think of. You see, he was already alive and in existence before Christmas. Jesus was sat at the right hand of the Father since eternity. But yet on Christmas, he went out of his way to come and to subject himself to becoming a baby. He came out of his way to live and die for us. He didn't just sit back and wait. 
And the Redeemer is supposed to do that, to go after the one needing redemption, not just to wait for them to come. You see, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8 explains it this way. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even to the cross. So Jesus went out of his way to pursue us, to redeem us. Chad was coasting to an easy inheritance, and here comes Boaz, the pursuing redeemer. Boaz brought it to his attention. Now, Boaz here, it says, he was known for being a good guy, all-around good guy in the town. Um, He was someone who followed God. He always did the right thing. And now, he has brought Chad to the city gate, which is essentially like the courthouse. This is where a lot of important things took place. And he does this in public, in in a way to put the pressure onto Chad. And he says, I want you to act now. Don't just wait until later when you get it for free. He says, act now, because if you don't, then I will. You know, if this happened in private, then Chad probably could have pointed out that the Redeemer isn't legally obligated to do this. This is just something you do because it's the right thing to do. It's a good thing to do, but you're not required to. But here in a public setting, if you're someone who cares about your reputation or your image, there's a little more pressure. You can't just say, well, this might be a good thing to do, but I'm just not willing to pay that money. And in this way, Boaz kind of put the pressure on him. And surprisingly, as we saw from the end of that little section, Chad stepped up. He said yes. He said, this looks like a great deal. Um, This looks like the right thing to do. I'll do it. I will redeem it. But of course, there's a bit of a catch. Back to verse 5, Boaz tells him this catch. Then Boaz says, On the day you buy the land from Naomi... You also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. So this is where things get a little complicated. You see, Chad said yes to redeeming the land, and it looks like he's acting as a loving redeemer. It looks like he's displaying his head. It looks like he's taking risks. But with a string attached, with Ruth attached to it, he says no. It doesn't look like it's as good of a deal for him at this point. Now you see there was this ancient Israelite law where if a relative had died, part of the the role of a redeemer was that they then, if they were going to redeem this family, would marry the widow. We're probably glad this law doesn't still exist so we don't have to marry our brothers-in-law or our sisters-in-law. But this was a good way of protecting women in this day. And so Boaz says, okay, this is a good way to protect Ruth. And in front of everyone, you were willing to buy this land. How about you also protect Ruth? How about you also take care of her? What about this law? (laughs) But now with Ruth involved, as Chad says, this might endanger his own estate. You see, this changes the deal. It's not as good. And also, this changes a bit of the social pressure as well. You see, if Chad is going to acquire the land, it's obviously going to have upfront costs. It's going to be expensive. He's going to have to pay for it and fix it up. 
But also, if a redeemer has kids with someone who was a widow, those kids are not legally the redeemers. Those kids legally belong to the dead husband. And so when it comes time to inherit Chad's land or to inherit this land that he was redeeming, his kids that he already has, they wouldn't have access to that land. It would be immediately given to Ruth's kids, the kids that he has to them, because they're viewed as being the kids not of Ruth and Chad, but of Ruth and her her husband, Malon, the one who passed away. And so with this, the potential inheritance for his family is minimized. It's not as good of a financial gain. It's a little too expensive for him. And while he might have been motivated by the social pressure to redeem the land, well, now the social pressure is going in the other direction. Because if Ruth is attached and he has to marry her, well, who is Ruth? She's a Moabite. And we remember the Moabites. The Moabites were the enemies. And the Israelites were actually prohibited from marrying Moabites. If you married a Moabite, that would mean that you are banned from participation in worship for ten generations. So while redeeming the land makes you look like a good guy, marrying Ruth actually hurts your reputation and is a sacrifice to your social capital. This is going to cost a lot. This is going to hurt your reputation. And being the redeemer for this family was a big risk and brought up the question, well, is it worth it? Is it worth it? And Chad answers like a Chad does, right? He says, no, it's not worth it. It's not worth the social cost. It's not worth the potential of losing my inheritance to these other kids. And so he backs out and he says, go for it. Boaz, it's yours. He says, take it. And I think what this shows is that when it comes to displaying God's love to others, you know, we can't fake it. Um, and we can't be in it for our own gain. We can't be in it for our own reasons. See, God's love is too expensive. You can't just virtue signal your way into it, and you can't just just display it to others for the sake of your reputation. It is costly. It's expensive. And I know today, you know, doing good things, especially in front of others, has become very in vogue, right? A lot of people, especially on social media, love to take pictures, you know, at an event or at a good cause in order to, to kind of boost their reputation, in order to kind of boost their influence on the internet, makes them look like a good person. But once the cameras are off, half the time they don't really care about the people. Or if it comes time to actually give money or actually give more time than just the time it takes to take a picture, they wouldn't be quite as interested. And today, when when social justice and when doing good things has become so secularized and it's become so in vogue, oftentimes people do it for selfish reasons. Social scientists actually say that they think they can predict when in a person's in a person's career decline they will turn to activism. Actually, they've seen it in celebrities that it's all too predictable. When someone's career starts declining, their first instinct turn to activism, get into a cause, start giving money, start being active in some sort of justice, and the career will rebound. Now, this has been satirized in the new Netflix movie called The Prom. Um, where there are a bunch of these Broadway stars who got a really bad review and their reputation has taken a hit. No one wants to come see their show anymore. And so the two main characters, who are played by James Corden and Meryl Streep, they decide the way to revive their reputation and their fame is through activism. And Corden 
begins to, to scheme ways that they can get their reputation back. And he says to Streep, you know, all we need is a cause, but we need something we can handle. Streep then says, yes, some little injustice that we could drive to. Then they make it clear that they really don't care about the people involved or the cause. They even make the joke that we're going to help this person whether they like it or not. Because they were in it for themselves. And essentially this is what Chad did. He was like, well, this is a good investment for me. And as soon as it's no longer a good investment, or as soon as he doesn't look good doing it, he's not not wanting to be involved. He doesn't want to display God's redemption if it costs that much, if it's that expensive. So, Chad was trying to look out for himself. And guess what happened with that? Well, his name is blotted out. Um, We don't even know his name. We're here making up names for him because he's been forgotten. And Boaz, the one who took it, now his name is remembered. He's the hero of the story. He's the one who could have gone bankrupt and could have been kicked out of society. And now he's often viewed as a Christ figure in this situation. He's actually the one who's recorded in the genealogy of Jesus in the book of Luke. Even though, legally, the redeemed father shouldn't have been included because of the great cost that Boaz paid, he's the one who's included in that genealogy. Boaz was the one who gave up a lot, and God honored that. And it's just as Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, verse 33, that whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life, for his sake, will preserve it. We see that if we take up our cross, if we deny ourselves, if we give sacrificially, and that's how we find ourselves in God's story. That's how we find ourselves being plotted along in the dots of what God is doing in the world. And if we cling to our life, if we're worried about how this would look or how costly it is, just like Chad, that's how we're forgotten. Okay, back to the passage. Uh, Verse 7 here. Verse 7. Now the deal is going to take place. They agreed to it. And now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to another. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. Uh, Now in signing the papers with Seraphim, I really tried this with Stephen. I tried to give him one of my shoes, but weirdly enough, he didn't want my beat up old Nikes. And so we weren't able to do that. I don't know why. I actually, I'm pretty hard on my shoes. And usually like every two Christmases, I get new shoes. And I'm like just limping along to get to this Christmas because this one has like a piercing in the air. And so every time I walk, it kind of sounds like a pug. It's just following me around all the time. It's like <gasps> gasping for air. So I'm like, no wonder Stephen didn't want my shoe. But that's the way it was done back then. It's funny that the text actually says, hey, this was weird. And we no longer even do it this way. So they made that deal, traded the sandals. And then it says, uh, catching up in verse 9, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. It's significant here. Boaz didn't just buy the property. He's also marrying Ruth. He was going above and beyond. Then in verse 11, Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. 
May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah, unless you can pronounce it better, and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the, through the offspring of, that the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So, it's this beautiful picture, and I wish we had time to go into who Rachel and Leah are, and who um, Tamar was. Essentially, these were all people who were outside of the family of God, and God brought in and made central to his story. And really, that's what happened, what's happening to Ruth. She was an outsider, and now she's being brought in central to the story. Back to verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Then this is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amadinabab. Amadinadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. Did you see that dramatic twist at the end, guys? Did you see that? <laughs> now, for most of us today... Um, when we think of a dramatic ending or a shocking twist, we probably don't think of a genealogy, do we? Right? We don't think of a list of names that are really hard to like pronounce. Oftentimes, when we see the genealogies in the Bible, we think, boring, move on, this doesn't teach me how to live, this doesn't do anything. But this, this genealogy is actually the surprise twist in the story. This is actually really important, and these genealogies are scattered all throughout the Bible, and they're very important for providing a historical context and for making a theological statement. Okay, Not only do the genealogies root us into a time in history when these people lived at that time, but genealogies also show us that God was working in history through people to accomplish his goals. And in this case... This list was really important, and it was really dramatic. And this is what makes it more than just a little happily ever after. Okay, the Lord healed her, they had a kid, everything worked out in the end. And then they all rejoiced in Obed, and that's cool and somewhat miraculous. But, you know, people get remarried and have kids, and God heals the barren a lot. But this surprise twist at the end was significant for the Jew reading this story. And this is what makes it the catastrophe. You see, it was, it was really heading in one direction. And then at the end, there was something there, something that changed. It was kind of there the whole time. We just didn't see it till the end. And this surprise ending, for, for the Jew reading this and seeing this genealogy, this would be the equivalent to a surprise ending in a movie like The Sixth Sense or Fight Club or an episode of Sherlock, right? Where... It, but it wasn't that, like, Ruth wasn't a ghost the whole time, or she wasn't like the split, split personality of Naomi, it wasn't Moriarty still alive. The twist was this genealogy. 
And this was exciting because as soon as they would hear the Obed father, Jesse, the Jew in this day would think, like, wait, 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 Jesse? Which Jesse? And they would say, and Jesse fathered David. And there would be eruption of excitement. People would be going crazy like, wow, the David, the best king in all of Israel? We had no idea. This is his origin story? Who would have thought that he would come from a Moabitess? Who would have thought that he would come from a barren woman? Who would have thought that all of this took place, that God worked in order to go to David? And people would have cheered and gone crazy. We read this and we're like, yeah, that's pretty boring. But honestly, this would have been the most exciting thing for them. I mean, imagine if I had stood up here and I told you that, okay, like, everything is going to go back to normal tomorrow. COVID's been completely cured and no one's weird about it. You know, Pence and Trump and Biden and Harris, they've all got it and everyone's okay with it. They've all fixed it and we can just go back to normal tomorrow. Just imagine the celebration, right? If everyone was on board, that's the kind of reaction they would have if they heard that immediately this was the offspring that it led to, that Obed had led to David, that through tragedy and loss and pain, it led to this amazing king. They wouldn't just snooze on by. They'd be very excited. No one would have seen it coming. And for us today, as we celebrate Christmas, well, what we know and what we see is that it was from the line of David that would then come Solomon, eventually Joseph, and Jesus. And so not only does this connect us with Redemption for the nation of Israel and the King David, but this connects us with Jesus himself. So it's a surprise. It really is a twist. That somehow, in all the twists and turns and all the things that don't make sense, God still connected the dots and led his way to Jesus. And this twist, the fact that this led to David, really offered hope for everyone. It offered hope for everybody involved in this story. For Naomi, for Ruth, for Boaz, I would say even for Elimelech, Naomi's husband. It offered hope for all of them. Okay, You see, Naomi, Naomi had gone through so much in the first three chapters that she didn't even want to be called Naomi anymore, which meant sweet. She said, well, I am now bitter to the core. Please call me Mara, because that means bitter. And now she has a baby in her arms. And the women say, Naomi has a son. Naomi has a child descended from her to carry on her name. You see, a child in this day, especially for a woman like Naomi who's been through tragedy, this child meant hope. This child meant a future for her family. This child meant that what Naomi thought, which was that God's hands were against her, this meant that God's hands were for her, that God's healing hands were on her. And I just imagine the day when when Naomi would meet Jesus one day, the woman who thought that God's hands were against her, and, and Jesus could show her his hands, show her the scars, and say, do these look like hands that were against you, that caused harm to you? These are hands that are for you. And this child provided that hope for Naomi and her story went through a dramatic catastrophe into leading to a good thing. And this child was also hope for Naomi's dead husband, Elimelech, the guy who only made it three verses into the, into the book, and then he died. His only action was a bad thing, moving to Moab. There was no one to carry his name, and really that was just about the worst legacy that an Israelite man could 
end with. No kids, just left Israel, and that's the end. And the commentator Carolyn Custis James says this. She says, Elimelech was in the grasp of the jaws of annihilation. His name, his lineage, was on the brink of extinction. And so Elimelech was actually needing a redeemer as well. And Custis James goes on to say that the question underlying the book of Ruth is this. Is there any hope for the dead? Because Elimelech seemingly was just going to be erased to history. He was dead. Death was going to have the final say. But the answer in Obed was that death was not going to have a final say. That there was redemption and hope for the dead. That even though many saw him as a lost cause, even though the suffering and the grief that his family experienced was so tremendous that at this twist, there was hope for the future. And so even Elimelech got redemption in this case. And then there's Boaz. Okay, Boaz was kind of the hero of the story. Um, but he wasn't like the charismatic, charming, brave hero that we typically think about. Um, when we read about Boaz, he's just kind of the overall good guy um, who through just consistent, virtuous living, just doing the right thing all day, every day, just going to work, providing for people. Eventually, he had some opportunities to be very generous. He had some opportunities to protect a vulnerable woman, and he protected her. And it was through these just faithful acts of virtue that God honored his story. After years of just doing the right thing, God gave him an opportunity. And through just his faithful following of God, God honored it, and he gave him the legacy that any Israelite man would have dreamt of. Just by showing up every day and doing the right thing. And God used each and every day of Boaz's virtuous living to work together to eventually lead to Jesus and to do an amazing thing. So he kind of became our hero. And then there's, of course, Ruth, um, who the name, or who the book was named after. Now, the thing with Ruth is, you know, she was really the outsider in this whole story. Um, she was the one who was stigmatized and stereotyped she was like the surprise hero. It was just surprising that she wasn't an evil, horrible person, let alone being an amazing, godly woman. And there's an ama- there's really a reason that the book is named after her. Because it was, it was incredible, it was unthinkable that a Moabite woman could express God's love, could be the good guy in the story. That a Moabite, that a foreigner, was actually showing the Israelites how to follow God. It was actually showing the Israelites what God wanted from them. And because of this, I mean, really, Ruth is the hero of the story. We have an easy time saying, yeah, Boaz is the Christ figure. But really, Ruth was the one who essentially died so others could live. Ruth was the one who gave up her whole life in Moab and went to Israel with no promise that God would be for them, only thinking God's hands could be against them. She's the one who took these faith-filled risks. Ruth is the one who gave up so much. Now, one scholar put it this way. He said that everything Ruth has done from the first scene until now has led to the possibility of the birth of this child of hope. That it was Ruth's faithfulness, kindness, and loyalty to Naomi that led to all this happening. That same scholar goes on to say, as the, as the townspeople, you know, they knew who the hero was. They celebrated Ruth. They said Ruth is a blessing to Naomi. 
Ruth is better to you than seven sons. They didn't celebrate Boaz and his amazing redemption. They knew that Ruth was the hero here. I mean, that same scholar says about Ruth and about this blessing, that this award ceremony they gave her, that to have seven sons is the absolute height of blessing. Seven representing the number of completeness and wholeness. Said there is no higher praise given to anyone, let alone a woman, in the Hebrew Scriptures. Ruth doing this, she was the one who really died so that others could live. And so what Ruth teaches us here... And what this book teaches us as we live in the middle space between Jesus' first arrival and his second coming is that God is working behind the scenes in thousands of ways that we could never even imagine. He's working in the outsider. He's working in those who are the lost causes. He's working in those who look like they've gone through so much that they're so bitter that they've given up. And he works through those who just show up every day and are consistent and faithful. And through all these different people, God works in human history to accomplish his goals. And what the book of Ruth shows us, or I guess invites us into, is to consider all those people in our lives and to consider all these different events in our lives. Every conversation we have, every person we encounter, every choice we make, as potentially something God is doing to work in the world as another dot in the picture God has drawn this book is calling us to consider that God is working in a lot of ways that we cannot even see and in the pain and the tragedy when we can't seem to fathom how God could possibly be redeeming this the book of Ruth shows us that God then works in these you catastrophic moments to turn things the right way and during Advent we remember this that that God works even when we can't see it, even in the middle space. And we remember now that Jesus was born in a very humble, very quiet, very kind of dark way. You know, he decided to appear within the world as a baby, not coming as a triumphant king, not coming as this warrior, but subjecting himself to that risk um, that didn't really make sense at the time. Totally vulnerable, dependent on others to express his love to them. And in that confusion, somehow led to the redemption of the world. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing that God worked in all of these different unseen, all these different confusing small ways to bring about the redemption of the world. And Ruth shows us that. Ruth shows us that even when we can't fully understand what exactly God's doing, even when we can't fully understand the point of this story, God is working. God is working to bring about the redemption of the world. And now as we sit in this middle space where we hold intention, joy and despair, laughter and sadness, where we hold intention, all these different things, waiting for the kingdom to come in full, What we do is we remember God is working behind the scenes. That one day when he returns, all the dots will be connected and all the wrongs will be righted. And all we need to do is to faithfully follow him, to take these faith-filled risks, to display God's love to others, and then just to pray, come Lord Jesus, come. Come, take all this away. End this story and bring the you catastrophe that we're all waiting for.
And so, as we often sing in the Advent season, I'll end with these words. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night, and death's dark shadows put to flight. O come, O come, Emmanuel. And may that be our prayer this Christmas season, as we live through this middle space. Come, Jesus, come. Let's pray. So Jesus, we just thank you for working behind the scenes in so many amazing ways. We trust you um, among all the events in our lives that seem so ordinary or that seem so tragic or that seem so good. We trust that you are working in those to bring about your purposes even when we can't see them. God, would you continually help us to look back on the events of our lives, to look back on the people you've put in our lives to to reflect on what you have done and to be motivated and to be encouraged by that hindsight and by that clarity that we see your hand working. God, we believe that your hand works in our lives. We want to be faithful to make the choices and the decisions that you call us to and, and to display your hesed love to others. As we go into this Christmas season, would you show us who it is that you're calling us to display that love towards? Would you show us who that we can cling to, who we can display and said to? And God, as we we move through all the pain and the tragedy in our lives, we thank you for being present with us. That regardless of the state of the world now, that you are and can only be good. So God, we just hold to that as we live in this middle space, that one day when all the dots are connected, um, nonetheless, we are with you and you are good. So Jesus, we love you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. Please join us again at Common Ground Church.